0: Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt.
0: We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships.
1: If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place.
0: Here we go. Consequences, Sherry. That's our topic for today. Let's talk about
1: consequences. Mm, That's a good one. You like it? Yeah, I do.
0: You know, <laughs> it's there, everybody. There, well, there are so many things in life where the consequences are well known. Like, for instance, smoking cigarettes. That is a behavior that at least for the last 50 or so years, longer really, there have been known consequences. The one that first comes to mind, right, is uh, that lung cancer is tied directly to cigarette smoking. Mm-hmm. So, the consequences are known and universally known. And it would be hard to start smoking cigarettes now in 2022 and claim you had no idea that there were health risks, right? Right. How about one of my favorites, <laughs> ice cream? If I was to go back to what I did in early sobriety, which is eat a gallon of ice cream every night,
1: it wasn't every night. It, was, it
0: might not have been every night, it might not have been a full gallon, but it you know, I hear people talk about, oh, I ate a pint of ice cream and I feel bad. And I'm like, oh, pint. That was, I wish I, I wish I could have I <laughs> wish I could have kept it to a pint. But you can't eat a gallon of ice cream every night and claim that you didn't know that there would be a link to diabetes or obesity and other health risks involved mm-hmm. with that kind of sugar and fat consumption. So then the risks associated, and I'm not here to say no one should ever eat sweets, but the risks associated with excessive sweets consumption the consequences are very very well known how about one that doesn't have to do with something we put into our body how about if you do something that's on the outside seems healthy like exercise exercise is good for you but if you go to climb mount everest There are known consequences, known risks involved. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've never even thought about climbing Mount Everest, so I haven't done a lot of research, but I know you can die doing it. You think? I think hypothermia and altitude sickness and, I don't know, getting eaten by a polar bear. I mean, Polar bear. Well, it's cold. (laughs) It's cold on Mount Everest.
1: There are no polar bears, just yetis. But
0: there are definitely (laughs) risks and consequences when it comes to climbing Mount Everest. Avalanche. And so in, in all three of these examples, there are known and accepted consequences. You can't pretend you didn't know. But I am here to say that when it came to alcohol, when it came to starting to drink for me back in high school and then really devoting my life to drinking in college, the only known consequence, you know, I knew not to drink and drive. Otherwise, I didn't think there were any consequences. I knew When I thought of what an alcoholic is or what the disease of alcoholism was, I pictured the gutter drunk, the guy passed out, you know, in a pool of his own vomit in under a bridge somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I knew, well, I didn't know, but I was confident that I wouldn't reach that level. And so I didn't think there were any consequences. All the adults in my life drank, all of the people my age in my late teens and early twenties drank, heck, you drank a heck of a lot back then. Um, so everyone around me was a drinker and, and most of them were big drinkers. So I never even considered the consequences. Did you think about the consequences
1: back then? Well, I didn't necessarily think that I was going to turn in, you know, I would become an alcoholic just because I drank, even though my mom tried to scare me a lot to because my father was an alcoholic. Um, but I knew that, you know, there would be unwanted interactions and you know if you got wanted attention, like, attention and so I knew I you went know, at a party and you could get into trouble and just you know when you're loud and drunk and you have no filter there could be you know fights and stuff but I didn't really think about alcohol turning me into an alcoholic
0: that's interesting because I, I think that just proves one of the many ways in which you are wiser than I am. I would even have arguments and fights. I mean, I was a lover, not a fighter. So not like fist fights <laughs> with boys, but I would get in arguments like at parties and I couldn't correlate the fact that the argument was the result of the alcohol. That never dawned on me. Mm-hmm. So the consequences of drinking to me were nilch, zero going in. And boy, did that prove to be wrong.
1: Just don't drink and drive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've got a wonderful guest today. You might have heard her chuckling at our little banter in the background there. (laughs) My good friend, Allison Sims, is joining us. Allison, thanks for being here with us on the Intoxicated podcast.
2: Thanks for having me. It's my first podcast ever.
0: Excellent. Well, I know you're going to knock it out of the park. You're going to be one for one after this. That's for sure. (laughs) Now, I heard you recently in a conversation describe yourself as the queen of consequences. So yes. while, while there are many people who go down the road of you know um, experimenting with alcohol, then drinking excessively and um, suffering minor consequences, skirting a lot of the things that, that they maybe should have gotten caught up in, um, that's not the case for you. A lot of the consequences came down kind of hard and heavy on you during your active drinking. Is that an accurate description?
2: Um, That is very accurate. I um, had heavy consequences from the very beginning, and it never really, and that never stopped me. I just kind of went for it from the beginning. Um, Do you want me just to tell you my story, tell you kind of how it all went?
0: Yeah, you know, why not? Let's, Let's start at the very beginning. How was, was yours one of the typical stories where you start in high school, experimenting a little? How did it start for you?
2: Um, I did start in high school. Both of my parents drank um, quite heavily, my father in particular, and um, was emotionally absent. Kind of a very typical story, I think. So I started drinking, A, I think, to hide my feelings and um, or feel something, actually, and B. I was seriously lacking in, um, attention, male attention. So drinking helped me find, um, both of those things. I stopped feeling and, um, got a lot of male attention and I just kind of was off to the races after that. Um, I, a lot of people,
0: a lot of people describe when something is missing and then they start drinking and they find it, they, they, They kind of describe it as, oh, is this how I was supposed to feel all along? And alcohol helped me find that. Was that how it felt for you?
2: You know, I don't know that I would explain it like that. Um, I don't know. I think I just, I, it just helped me not be numb. So I don't know if I can identify with what you're saying but it just kept me going it's how sure. i felt basically um it's it's how i felt it's how i felt alive um that started for mm-hmm. me at an early age really early um most of my relationships were all alcohol centric even at a very young age um Everything just centered around alcohol, college, you know, young adulthood. I did not drink when I was pregnant. However, you know, the minute I was no longer pregnant, I would drink. Um, every holiday was a party. Every the Kentucky Derby was a party. I know you talk about the the races. <laughs> I mean, I get that. Everything was a party, um, and it it just went that way for years and years and years until. I was basically um, an alcoholic, I was empty, and then I started suffering serious consequences. Like I was saying the other night, I have three DUIs, um, two within short span of one another. So honestly, the first DUI, go ahead.
0: Well, I was just going to ask, how old were you like the first time you got a DUI? And was that the first encounter with the law?
2: Yes. Yes. I was way too old to get a DUI. I was 38. Um, my children weren't home. I should have been home. I got talked into going out with a friend and um, drove home drunk in a, two o'clock in the morning at, in Powell, Ohio. It's um, That's not a place you want to well, nobody should drive drunk, but you don't want to right. drive drunk in Powell, Ohio. So um, that was my first encounter. Very light sentence. I'm Basically, the first DUI is a slap on the wrist, which um, I was happy for at the time. I don't know had it been a stiffer sentence, you know, punishment, if I would have gotten another DUI two years down the road, but I did. Um, I was... I had gone through a divorce, a very traumatic divorce, and um, I was involved with a very bad man that was definitely very um, alcohol centric. I would say that's definitely when my drinking got pushed way over the edge is, you know, that's all we did is we drank together. And, And he was a narcissist and I just got deeper and deeper and, um, and this
0: is the relationship after the divorce, you're saying mm-hmm. yes. was, was drinking was alcohol an impact. Was it part of the cause of the divorce? Do you feel like did it have play into your Absolutely. first marriage?
2: Absolutely. My, my ex-husband and I both drink way too much towards the end of our marriage. That's all we could do. We were miserable. We didn't know how to function together without it. Um, and I, I will say this is definitely out of my character, but my um, next boyfriend was married. That's definitely out of my character. Um, I just didn't care. I just took what I wanted. Um, I, I had no thought for her at all whatsoever. I really didn't. Oh, I did have thought for her. I thought she was wrong. That, you know, he and I were so in love. She should just get out of the way. I, I had no um, thought process at all. At that time though, I was drunk
0: you know. Yeah. Well, it's funny. We talk so much about how selfish alcohol makes us. And it's not even just when we're, you know, drunk blind or anything like that. It's just as it permeates our lives and changes the way our minds operate, we, we just get comfortable in this selfish nature, whether we're drunk or sober. And we're very, um, concerned about our own well being and our own well being only. And that carries over. I know for me, it did. And I think for a lot of people, it carries over into early sobriety, you go from being a selfish drunk to being selfish, everything is all about me in early sobriety. And it's so difficult for any kind of relationship, romantic or otherwise, to survive that. So I'm, I'm wondering during this period, like around the time of your divorce, how old were your kids and, and did, did the drinking and the divorce? I mean, it had to impact them. Yeah.
2: Oh, it was horrible. My daughter was 16 when we got divorced. My son was 12. Um, My ex-husband couldn't deal with things. So he moved to Florida and my son, it affected both of them very badly, but my son was affected very, very badly. Um, He also had major consequences and um, life choices with alcohol and the law. Um, He kind of followed my path, honestly. Um, He got into a lot of trouble and he had a prime example because two years after my first DUI, I got another one. I was so unhappy and miserable. And I just could not make this man leave his wife and love me and everything. I So I got another DUI and I got um, hit very hard with that punishment, very hard. Um, I had to serve 10 days in jail. I lost my license for three years. I Like we talked about, I had the red and yellow party plates, which is horrible beyond belief. I had a breathalyzer in my car and I had a teenager at home. Um so it, it he became a very very angry young man, very um very upset with me, obviously. Um so he got into his own issues with drugs and alcohol and it was not a good time for any of us. It it, it was awful. It was awful. Yeah. Um so you know, the life went on and um, it took me 10 years to let go of this man. It, it, and that completely destroyed my self-confidence and
0: mm.
2: I kept drinking and drinking. And by that time it was really a habit. And I just um, behaved in ways that were not flattering <laughs> to myself. I had no self-respect left, honestly, and um, started running with a very, party crowd by now my kids thank god were out of the house though they did see the train wreck of a mother when they came home for holidays and you know i would pass out watching the dogs eat their dinner i I, I just i I was a horrible um so what i'm looking for i was a horrible example absolutely horrible example um but i try i try to think of that phrase what is it hurt people hurt
0: people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's it's another way in which alcohol is both the medicine and the cause and it's terrible at both. When we have no self-esteem, the only thing that makes us feel a little bit better to kind of lift us up just enough to kind of survive is the alcohol. But then that also creates the behavior that puts us in the position of not having any self-esteem. So it's, it's one of those crazy loops. Same thing happened with me with depression and anxiety. I thought, Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, I've got, I've got this stress. I've got this stressful job. I've got all this anxiety. I'm depressed a lot of the times, but when I drink, it makes me feel a little better. And it took me so long to put the pieces of the puzzle together and realize the alcohol was what was causing the stress. The alcohol is what's causing the depression and anxiety. And it, it, it's not, and it's not a very suitable cure because I don't know if you're, you're like me, Allison, but I would only feel better for a short period of time. Um, like a relief at the beginning of a drinking session. But, but then, you know, I was miserable even, even when I was drunk. Um, so it's, it's not a very effective medicine. That's for sure.
1: I remember a few times after like say a particularly bad drinking incident or Matt and I would be arguing and, we would kind of feel a little bit better about one another and you would start drinking and you would say to me, I don't even know why I'm drinking. It doesn't make me feel any better, but I don't know what else to do. Yeah.
2: Like you said, it became such a habit. Yes. It's it's ingrained. It's what you do. You pick up a drink in a Mm -hmm. pretty glass. At least that's what I like to do. Um, so go ahead.
0: Were you a a wine drinker or what, what was the drink of choice for you?
2: I was a white wine drinker and it's, it's kind of funny. I've noticed on my Facebook memories, it's like memories from seven and eight years ago. Everything's just a shot of a wine glass on a table. I, how boring. Is this? <laughs> it's, it's like every memory I have is a shot of a wine glass. And my daughter was there a lot of it. You know, she, um she's, we start, we became drinking buddies for, a little bit. And my mother would say to me, this, you're her mother, not her friend. This is really not appropriate. And at the time I thought my mother was just jealous of our relationship. Um, and I realized that's not true. She was trying to, you know, she was correct. I did not need to be, you know, hanging at the bar with my kid. Um, that's exact opposite of what I needed to do.
0: Well, and you said you also had a crowd that you were running with um, th- that was drinking like that. I think that's really yeah. interesting. A lot of us um, who, as the disease progresses and the consumption progresses, and we get into our 30s, we get into our 40s, that we really isolate and begin to drink alone. But you you found the party crowd out there to, to hang with. That's interesting. I,
2: I did. We have... Um... I still hang out with quite, I hang out with them. I just do it differently now in different ways. Um, But no, we had, we had a great crew. We had great fun. We um, did a, had a fundraiser that was, well, I won't mention the fundraiser, but the main purpose was to get very drunk and spend a lot of money, supported children's charities. I was a single mom and I had never worked before I got divorced. So I did not make a lot of money. And I would just whip out my credit card with my like $2,000 limit because my credit was so bad and, you know, spend it up at those charities um, or go to the liquor store or an, a fine wine store and, and buy, you know, really nice bottles of wine. So that was another consequence. I, I had no money. My credit was horrible. And then I got my third DUI. Um, It was actually coming home from one of these events. And again, I got lucky. It was six years. There's a certain number of years in between each DUI, which kind of measures amount your punishment. It had been long enough. And a friend of mine fronted me the money for a very good lawyer. So again, they treated it like my first DUI. And there really was very little punishment you know I lost my license for six months I had to go to probation um and every time I had one of these stints I would they they make you go to um like an outpatient counseling um and I did that every time and nothing worked I mean even after this last DUI nothing worked I just and then I began getting mean I um I had I'm still dating a really nice man and he took so much abuse at my hands, not physically but um, verbally. I just was angry. I think I hated myself. I, I hated what I had become. And when I drank, all my rage, which was every night, all my rage would just come directed out at him. It, you know, huh. he had never done anything wrong. He just he took all of my rage from everybody. Anybody is, in my
0: life is he or was he a drinker?
2: No, no, he can he can take it or leave it. Interesting, yeah. Interesting, yeah. So um, that's that's
0: very similar to our situation. Uh, you know, Sherry took a lot of verbal abuse from me and manipulation and gaslighting and all of that. And uh, uh, you definitely we talked about how early on you were a partier, but you definitely got to the point where you could take it or leave it as well. Yeah. So
1: I, I just drank more when I was around you because that's what you did. I got terrible hangovers. So by the time we were leaving college, I was like, Oh, I don't know if I can handle these hangovers. And, but I did cause that's what I thought was fun. And
0: that's what everybody does. Yeah. No consequences. Just drink.
1: Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah.
1: One of the things that
0: I, I want to go back to, I want to go back to a couple of things you talked about the yellow and red party plates. I don't know if that's unique to Ohio, but I've never heard of it. And I've lived in a lot of different places. So that's really interesting. So was that the reason, obviously, that's the result of a DUI. It's kind of like a scarlet letter kind of a thing.
2: Yes, that is the result. Well, I think Ohio's tough, I guess. Um, I think a few other states use them. But that is the result, typically, of your second DUI. Okay, And um, they're horrible because, yes, it is a scarlet letter. Everybody knows what you've done. It's for the whole world to see. I had teenagers, I had to take them to school. I mean, um, we're all tough, we're a tough bunch (laughs) because we had to get get through a lot because of, they had to get through a lot because of my behaviors. Um, But somehow they have grown to be wonderful adults. Um, But yeah, it's horrible and they do that quite often. I see I see the plates all over and it just breaks my heart cuz I know I know exactly what they're going through. And also, it you're on suspended driving privileges, so it certainly makes it a lot easier to keep you home, you know, cuz they can pull you over at any time if you've got those plates to make sure you're where you need to be.
0: So is it one of those things where you're only allowed to drive to work or to school like you have limited use of your own vehicle so they pull you over to check and make sure you're on your way to work yeah. or whatever
1: yeah probably yeah. yeah. well, also you know just able to pull you over without any cause so they can make sure you're mm-hmm. you know following the yeah. rules and not drinking
2: absolutely absolutely
1: yeah. um i don't know with, how i've never heard of that before i know and i grew up in the state right next to Oklahoma. yeah
0: we grew up in indiana we were right there
1: yeah not, yeah i've never heard that but Wow.
0: The I Ohio plates are otherwise white, right? So uh, they would really stand out, yeah. I would think.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, they stand out. And I even tried to get like, a you know, the, the plates to go over. I tried to get like a smoky plate. They made me take it right off. They mm-hmm. said, you can't, you can't obstruct your license. So um, they're just, I had to deal with it.
0: So part plates. of your sentence was how long you had to keep the yellow plate, like a year or two or whatever? That was part of the sentencing?
2: Three, three years. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And you would think that that would have been enough consequence not to do it again, but it was not. It wasn't enough. I, I don't think there were any consequences that could have stopped me until I was ready.
0: You know, the other thing I wanted to ask about the, the court ordered stuff we have actually a friend who does court ordered uh, alcohol addiction treatment counseling. And actually he got out of that because he said it was so disappointing and disheartening because when it's court ordered, the people that are there, they're only there to get his signature on the bottom of the page, proving that they had done what they were made to do. So they're not there of their own free will. They don't, they don't really want to get sober. They just want to get, get through the class and get out of there. Was that the scenario that you were in? Was that the situation with the, the addiction counseling that was court ordered for you?
2: Um, absolutely. Absolutely. I did what I had to do. Um, and I, when I finally went to, I checked myself into inpatient rehab because I had started drinking and driving again. And I, I just knew it, it was, de- I, I was done. It was a bad path. Oh, I also had developed a really, I can't believe I'm saying these things. I had developed a delightful habit of somehow getting the police involved when I would drink at home alone. I mean, I really? was just i I was a hot mess. I, yeah, um, I I had just the the police made stops to our house. When I mean, that's embarrassing. We live in a very nice part of town where we both have responsible jobs. It was just clear I was out of control. So, um, I did so, take myself so, into rehab.
0: So, since you're since you're telling us, we I think we need just a little more detail. So you would. Uh, What, like um, drunk and disorderly? Like you'd get in an argument and you'd call the police to come settle the argument? That kind of a thing?
2: Basically, yes. Mm, Yes. I I, I called the cops once. He called the cops once. It was dumb on both of our parts. Um, It it was just, it, it was very bad behavior. We were very toxic. We're not toxic when I'm not drinking.
0: You might appreciate this. Just to to lighten the mood for a quick second, I had two two friends in college, and we were all very heavy drinkers. One of them ate like half of the other guy's pepperoni pizza, and so the first guy was mad and took a paint roller with white paint on it and painted the other guy's back, and those two (laughs) morons called the police on each other. The police were so mad that they had to come and deal with these two idiots, paint roller and pizza, so um well it's so, yeah. funny
2: when you're in college not when you're in... my god I was over 50 I was over yeah. 50
0: so yeah. this is so just so I keep it straight you had the 10-year relationship with the gentleman who wouldn't leave his wife and then this is after this is with your current boyfriend that you're talking about yes. That you would, okay
1: yeah
0: so so uh, okay so you ended the relationship with the married gentleman but you you were still drinking that wasn't that wasn't consequence enough to bring sobriety your way yet.
2: I think I was so overcome with guilt and shame that I couldn't, I was so overcome with guilt at what I had done to my children and my ex-husband. I mean, and I don't mean to say it like that, that he wasn't part of that package, but I carry my most guilt, the most guilt and regret is about my children, what they had to see and suffer. that, that was just, they did, nobody deserves that. Um, so yes, I kept drinking and drinking and drinking. I think trying to escape that. Um, I don't know that I have, I'm in therapy. Um, I, I, I do a lot of learning and programs, but you know, I'm not past the shame.
0: What made you decide sobriety was the right choice for you? Was there a, like a rock bottom incident or did the, the shame and depression just get overwhelming? Like what, what made you make the change?
2: Um, I knew I would, I went out with a friend. I got ridiculously drunk. I tried to drive. I knew I couldn't drive. So at least I was wise enough to get out of the car and I um, I went home and my boyfriend had left the house cause he didn't want to be anywhere around me. And I just called an Uber and I, it was just time I caught an Uber and I took, my, we live about five minutes from the inner city hospital trauma bay. So um, I just Ubered my way to the emergency room and, and just handed it over at that point. Um, I didn't want to live. Oh, I also, I, tried to kill myself several times um and that night was one of them
0: were the were the attempts all like in a bunch toward the end or were they spread out over time
2: spread out I would say spread out yeah yeah
0: that's that's so interesting you know the way the mind works the way the alcoholic mind works you were out with people right at a bar Mm -hmm. that's how this started and mm-hmm. then you just went to a dark place and, and, uh, and that happened and then and you knew and you, you basically checked yourself into a detox that night.
2: Yes, I did, I did. And it was, it was the best thing I've ever done. Um, I will say though what I found disturbing because I guess it was just my time, but the attitude you talked about with people going to the um, court ordered rehab you have that in inpatient rehab too. I mean, people were saying that, you know, that had been their 17th and 18th time in a rehab. And I'm like, wow, that that's great. Number one, it's horribly expensive. Sure. I mean, I just paid it off. And that was, I don't know, two, two and a half, three years ago. Um, so I found that same attitude. Actually, people just are like, it was just one more stop on the road. I'm just going to, Dry out and you know, sleep a lot and go back and do it again. It was it was sad. It so was, made me sad.
0: Help, help me understand. You at the hospital typically that's a three or four or five day detox and then they hand you off to a, a, like a thirty day inpatient rehab if that's the course you cho- choose. Is that what you did?
2: Um, I went to. Um, I didn't need medical detox. Okay. I, I needed a little bit, not much. I, so I went to inpatient rehab for seven days and then I went to an outpatient. Okay. Yeah. I needed to get back to work. So that's how, um, I took it from there.
0: But the people that you, some of the people anyway, that you experienced that were multiple, uh, not offenders, that's a rude way to say it, but they were uh, regulars at the, at the rehab. They just looked at it as a way to recharge the batteries, sleep it off, um, get back to kind of some level set grounding and then get back out there.
2: You just kind of had all types there. Um, It was interesting. I didn't, there weren't a lot who really wanted to get sober. I, I didn't feel, um, there were some women there that were just sad, kind of like me. One woman had lost her husband, got addicted to benzos. And then another woman had lost her baby at nine months. And they were just, they were grief stricken. They couldn't get past the grief. They didn't know how, Um, And that's how I think I would describe a lot of my drinking too. Grief stricken, guilt stricken. I didn't, I numbed out.
0: So when you, when you checked in, you know, you had a very kind of traumatic ending. You, you went out for an evening and you ended up in the hospital as a result. It's not like there was an intervention and you planned this all out and you took a week to get ready. And then you went off to an inpatient rehab. What was, so when you're around people that are in this kind of the state that you're describing, Were you taking it seriously? Were you like, that's it? I'm going to get sober. Or were you just kind of going with the flow? What's the mindset like at that point?
2: I was very serious. I knew I had to stop. Um, I didn't have clothes for three days (laughs) because (laughs) he was upset with me. And he took his time getting them to me. Um, But however, you know, eventually I got some clean clothes. I took it very seriously. I was quiet. I spent a lot of time by myself. I slept a lot. Um I journaled a lot. I took all the classes that were available. Um I liked they had art therapy. I really liked the art therapy that was you know it, it was all terrible at all. Um it's where I needed to be. If if my insurance had covered 30 days, I would have stayed 30 days. But they just were not willing to. So yeah.
0: So since that experience, have you suffered any relapses or have you made it through to today?
1: I'll just listen. There to this you are, segment. you're froze.
0: Yeah. All right. Um, did, you hear, did you hear the question or do you want me to ask it again?
2: Can you ask it again?
0: Sure. I'm just going to leave a pause so this is easy to find this section. So has your sobriety continued uninterrupted from that, that initial detox and seven days of rehab, or have you had relapse experiences between then and now?
2: I have had relapse experiences. I have um, around a little over, I don't know, like 530 days, I think, sober. Um, I It was interesting. When um, you were not there in one of your your uh, meetings and Kelly, the nutritionist, was there, uh-huh. she, she explained to me, I, I asked her about intermittent fasting, which I had done the minute I got out of rehab. I realized clearly I have to control something in my life. Mm. Um, and she said that was actually one of the worst things you could do right out of rehab, that um, fasting led to um, relapses. And then she asked me if I had relapses. And I said, well, I, yes, I had. So I thought that was really interesting. So I have, I've stopped intermittent fasting ever since that um, meeting. Um, because yeah, I, the, I do feel.
0: Yeah, the, the danger with intermittent fasting is that it drops our blood sugar. And low blood sugar throws us into that part of our brain that is survival mode. And well, unfortunately for those of us like you and I, um, who drank so regularly, our brains associate alcohol with survival. And so when we Absolutely. go into that survival zone, um, it, you know, in a subconscious way, we are driven to drink. So I've heard Kelly talk about, the the dangers of intimate, intermittent fasting and early sobriety. I think I don't think she's against it overall. In fact, I know she's not against it overall. But it's you have just to be term several years, years into sobriety yeah. before it before yeah. it makes sense. Yes,
1: mm. long term
2: sobriety. That,
0: that's so interesting. But, I'm. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, I am. Um, I thought that was really interesting when I heard that. But I am. Um, I know my triggers, and I'm I'm getting better. I'm getting much better. My triggers are stress and anger. Um. If I get pissed off, that is when I want to drink. That is how I handle stress. The shootings on Tuesday, I knew I couldn't drink. So I just went to bed for three days, basically. Hmm. Um, That's if, if I know I'm going to have a problem, that's how I arrest it. I try to go to bed because um, the the grief, the stress, the anger, that's what makes me just want to, you know. Um, blackout basically so
0: yeah when um, the when the reality becomes you know what's on our plate becomes kind of overloaded we've got this that's what's so diabolical about this disease we've got this experience that never goes away in the back of our mind our mind knows what we used to do to treat situations like that and um, you know it it wants us to to go and grab that bottle to alleviate that kind of that kind of pain. And, you know, this, the shooting to which you're referring, the Uvalde, Texas, it's, it's the most, you know, not since Sandy Hook have we had little kids, elementary schoolers. And I I know no matter how old they are, it's tragic, but it's just different. It's so, so sad. And so being overloaded makes a lot of sense. I guess the fact that your go-to reaction now of sleep, one good thing about that, one of the things that we say in early sobriety is never let yourself get too, you know, a variety of things. Don't get too hungry. Don't get too thirsty. Um, don't get too emotionally upset. Don't get too angry, but also don't get too tired. So at least your go-to is one of the, you know, antidotes for being too tired, sleep, sleep it off for a few days. Do you feel better now?
2: I do. I feel better. I also ate ice cream. I also love ice cream.
0: <laughs> do you have a particular favorite <laughs> flavor i'm
2: not eating a gallon oh savannah buttermint. savannah buttermint. do you Ooh, guys have huh. jenny's ice cream there
0: i don't um, think so but i'm gonna have to look into that
2: <laughs> she's a she's a ohio local and it's amazing so um but I, another consequence i have suffered um i can't do a lot of ice cream because i completely wrecked my gut with mm. my drinking so uh-huh. I have neuropathy, and I have irritable bowel syndrome, and I have chronic diverticulitis. Mm. And um, I nobody can really say that that all came from the drinking, but I would imagine that had something to do with it.
0: Mm-hmm. You well, know? it's it's interesting. There are so many health problems that there's like a dotted line connection to drinking, but... We still seem reluctant to draw that straight line, like there is between smoking and lung cancer, but but there's no question in my mind that that there's kind of an endless variety of health concerns that drinking um, you know brings about, makes worse, and it sometimes it's the alcohol itself directly, but a lot of times it's the behavior that the alcohol lets us uh, you know get into. Like like I ate like shit when I was drinking, you know, and I would otherwise try to eat pretty well. So um there there's a definitely a correlation between alcohol and all kinds of health concerns. So
1: well, and thinking about your drinking to soothe stress. So your body is really not releasing those stress hormones.
0: Yeah, your nervous mm, system so, good point.
1: you know, there you are already highly stressed, then you're adding a a different kind of poison to it essentially. So, so process.
0: So after a couple, two and a half years of mostly sober and working really hard on your sobriety, learning a lot, making great progress, how is your relationship? I think it's, it's interesting that your boyfriend was with you back when you were drinking too. So have, have things improved to talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind.
2: Oh, things have definitely improved. It's funny, we were talking about this today at lunch. He's still um, a little shell-shocked. He still um, has a wall up about certain things. He tells me that, um, you know, know, the things I've said to him in the past, hard to forget. And I get that, I can completely understand. Um, I don't blame him, I really don't. I don't know that he'll ever be able to get past some of this stuff. I don't know that he'll ever trust me enough or let me close enough to get married. Um, I would say that, um, our intimate life isn't that great either. There's a wall there, um, of my own doing, you know, it's not a hundred percent. Well, I put the wall there. You know what I'm trying to say? Um, Nothing's ever a hundred percent. However, I built that wall up. Um, so we're doing well, we do great if I don't drink. Yeah. But um, I did have a relapse and it was ugly. And he said to me, he said, I don't know how I did this for so long. He said, I will not do this again. So it's, it's clear to me that if I want, if I were to go back to drinking, he and I, he just couldn't, we couldn't continue. Um,
0: one of the big factors, one of the big results of your drinking that you've talked about is uh, low self-esteem, shame, things like that. I've noticed that when when you talk about it, you own a lot of it. Do you, how do you feel if I say to you, Allison, you know, you've got to blame the alcohol. The, the alcoholic is the person that created the chaos. It's not you. Are you able to separate the two or do you still carry a lot of the shame around with you?
2: Sometimes I can separate it. sometimes I can't. Um, logically, I know that. However, um, I just damaged so many people. I hurt so many people. Um, that that's just a that's a bitter pill to swallow. And you know I've, I have my kids and I, you know I have apologized to them, They have forgiven me, but I, I can tell sometimes they don't trust me. Um, there's just permanent damage done to all of my intimate relationships. So, yeah, I don't know that I'll ever put that down a percent. I would love to. Um, I had a rough week all week. And I think when incidents like these, these, um, traumatic events in our society happen for some reason, that just brings back the guilt and the shame. And I start to, you know, mentally flog myself a little, I've done that this week too. Um, mm. dreams, you know, some bad dreams. And um, so, yeah, I think when my mind starts to go there, I just, I kind of go there. And I remember, you know, when I get to that place, that depression that I, I to the point where I want to drink, I just, I, that shame comes back. The memories, you know, the stuff that I just can't take back.
0: The stuff that we're talking about now, Allison, this is the hardest stuff that, you know, it takes work. It takes recovery work. It takes understanding the disease and working on getting healthier, but it also takes time. When you talk about trust, you talk about intimacy, and you talk about shedding the shame. Those are the kinds of things where we've just got to replace bad memories with good. And we've got to be patient with ourselves and patient with the people around us and hope that the people around us our patient with us, because some of this, there's no quick fix for it. It's so interesting to me that alcoholism is a progressive disease and we progress to this traumatic, awful place over the course of years. And in our cases, Allison, over the course of decades, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And then getting out of it, it doesn't have to take decades, but it definitely takes a long period of time and, and the patience to get there. It sounds to me like you're the kind of person um, that I don't know if patience comes naturally to you, but you've resigned yourself to the fact that some of these relationships are damaged. This stuff's going to take time. Um, do you do you have hope of getting all the way, or at least most most closely to all the way back with, say, your kids and and with your boyfriend?
2: I don't know about my boyfriend. To be honest with you, I I, I don't know if we can get that all the way back. Um, I would say that we were both damaged in in that. Um, I, I don't know. But with my kids, absolutely, yeah, I, I think we can get it all the way back. I do. Good. Um, that's great. My parent, my parents drank, and you know, I have forgiven them. It took a while, but I yeah, we'll be okay. We'll be okay.
0: What do you think in kind of wrapping up here, Allison? what do you think the best way is to make a change for the generations that come after us so that they understand the consequences is the scarlet letter approach like Ohio does. Is that, is that effective? Is it a public policy like legal changes or is it education? How how do we make it so that people draw a direct correlation between the consequences of heavy drinking and you know, like we do with cigarettes and eating a gallon of ice cream. Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Um, I would definitely say the scarlet letter approach is horrible, and that doesn't show you it. That's that's just horrible. It's it's really discrimination. Um, it's discrimination. That that was that's not cool. I think I, I agree with you.
0: I I don't mean to jump right in, but I agree with no. you, especially when. It's a disease that feeds on shame and low self-esteem. If, if, if the biggest impetus to making us relapse and drink is low self-esteem and shame, as I believe, and it sounds like you believe it to be, I think that's just a horrible way to go, just to, to drag people through the mud like that. I don't know, not to say that when you do the crime, you don't need to do the time, but I just don't think that's the right approach. So
1: I totally agree with you. Trying to embarrass yeah. the person from not drinking and driving. Yeah.
2: It Right, yeah. education—it's
1: just it's shame.
2: Ho- it's horrible. Um, and my kids suffered. Now, I'm the one who put them there, suffering with that yellow plate, but they didn't deserve that. Um, I think personally, for me, I think education, mental health awareness. I think um, we need to address this because drinking is so insidious. You know, you start as a teenager; it's fun you have all these goofy memories. And then I'm I'm kind of watching this now, I think with my daughter, she's, you know, in her thirties and and I just see some things and I actually said something to her once and she said, well, yeah, but we don't have the alcohol addiction. And I just wanted to say, well, (laughs) you know, that's right because you could possibly be in this middle ground You don't know when you're going to slip over. You don't know if you're going to slip over. So I think more awareness on mental health and alcohol education is, it's how we've, we got to work on that. Um, I would really like to find a way to somehow um, make that my life's work. I don't know how to do it because it doesn't make sense to, you know, go work into rehab because I saw what's there. So I think there should be a different approach to rehab, like a, a a full connection, you know, the brain, the gut, the alcoholism, there just needs to be a better um, connection when we are reaching people. Does that make sense?
0: Oh yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think, and I think in some areas it's getting better, but the reliance that we have on a book that was written 85 years ago before we understood any of the brain chemistry. And we look at that as the end all be all solution. Um, I, you know, no doubt for some people, the 12 steps, uh, are, are a good fit, but there's so much that we know now that we didn't know then that's missing from that practice. And so I love the idea of incorporating it all. I mean, when we talk about, you know, mental health. I mean, addiction is a mental health disease. That's, that's what it is. So um, accepting that and treating it that way. um, I used to, I can even remember years ago, I used to skirt around that and say, Oh, there's, I think there's a link between mental health and addiction. And, and rather than just understand that that's what it is, it is a a mental health disease. So um, I think you're, I think you're right on uh, that the education's got to be you know, where we uh, focus our attention as opposed to, to more legal consequences. Um, We got to help people and awareness is where to go. And I love having you on this side, fighting for that with us. I, I love the idea of, of this being a big part of your life work going forward, just raising awareness. One of the things that's really inspiring about you, Allison, is your willingness to be vulnerable and honest the way you are. Um, I mean, you've, you've come on here and you've owned up to some serious consequences, the kinds of things um, that do bring shame to a person. And uh, I think your bluntness and your forthrightness is uh, uh, is the way to go. I mean, we've got to be honest and vulnerable if we hope to help other people avoid the same kinds of consequences.
2: I agree. And I will tell you one thing that I found completely, it blew my mind. There's a, um, I don't know if you've seen it in Australia, there is a it's about a five-minute commercial they run during the holiday times, and it is about drunk driving. And I think if more people saw that, they would. I I, I don't know. There's just something about this commercial that is so heart-wrenching, and it is not the it's not the normal um, "don't drink and drive or get pulled over." It's really um, it had a huge impact on me, and is I don't there- know.
0: Is there an accident, like a drunk driving accident involved?
2: There's like many drunk driving accidents. Oh, okay. So it like it centers on all these different people and you see them as their night progresses. And then you see all the accidents and there's a lot. It's very jarring. And then you see the family's reactions after. I mean, I just think if we saw okay. more stuff like that, I mean, it, I think- it, it's on YouTube if you, you should look it on YouTube, it's an Australian commercial. It blew me away.
0: I think that last away. piece, I think that last piece is so important, understanding what it does to families. Um, right. Be, because I mean, that's the true hidden consequence. You talked about the lack of trust and that that might never be fixed with you and your boyfriend. Trust is so hard to get back after going through, uh, active addiction. So, um, Anything that depicts what's going on in the family is like the commercial that you're describing is so valuable. And that fits right into what you were talking about, the education piece. We just, we need to better understand, better understand the consequences so we can avoid them.
2: Absolutely. And I will say one more thing. Um, I know there are high-risk jobs um, for alcoholism. I have a high, I'm in the medical field. Um, We have a high-risk factor. And there are other professions out there that have the high risk um, factors as well. So I, I would think if they could have, if these professions had a little something extra, that would be very helpful. It's hard to to look at death, read about death all day long and um, feel okay when you go home at night, you know? Oh yeah. It's yeah. A,
0: another form of kind of PTSD. Like, you know, if you're dealing yeah. in traumatic, yes. depressing areas, uh it's gonna drive you to to rely on that self-medication that didn't work. So absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent point. Well Allison, thank you so much for coming on the Intoxicated Podcast and talking to us today. That I think the most compelling part of your story is, like I said, just your your willingness to be open and honest about it and look for solutions for the, the generations that come after us. So really, really appreciate how forthright you are with with all this information and sharing your consequences with us.
2: Well, thank you. It's nice to meet you, Sherry. And I love Shout Sobriety. I'm so glad I found you.
0: Well, thank you for being a part of it. We love having you in Shout Sobriety and we love having you on the podcast. Take care,
1: Allison. Mm
0: -hmm. Bye-bye. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources.
1: If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org.
0: If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org.
1: No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org.
0: For my wife, Sherry
1: Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.